0: Thanks very much. And do please keep that passage open. That would be a great help as we work our way through it. Well, let me start with a question. What do you fear? What do you fear? My wife really struggles with small spaces. She's very claustrophobic. So whenever we're in a tall building, I brace myself to climb a gazillion steps, even when there's a perfectly good lift next to it. I, on the other hand, have no issue with that. I quite like feeling boxed in. Uh, If anything, I find very large open spaces more unnerving. But put a wasp near my food, Zoe will be cool as anything, and I become, in the words of Michael McIntyre, a total panicker. Well, we all know the symptoms of fear when they come, don't we? We're all scared of something. And we get those sweaty palms and stiff neck and dry throat and our heart starts to race just a little bit. The signs that there is something that we're scared of. Well, I guess there's fear on different levels too. But there are some things though that, objectively speaking, are scary, that we're supposed to fear. Lots of things in a city like ours that we fear. Here's a few things. Work stuff. Fear of failing, passing exams, getting into university or starting a new job, losing a job, money struggles, being stuck in a boring job, not being liked at work, having a bad boss, not getting on with the boss or messing up at work. So there's a lot of work stuff, but then there's the life stuff, finding a house to rent or a viable mortgage finding the right person how we look will the kids be safe how will the kids turn out riding a bike in town that's pretty scary for me not for the faint-hearted we fear car accidents and the safety of our streets Uh, sometimes being manipulated or losing control then there are health issues Serious sickness, middle age, old age. So that's the life stuff. And then there's the global stuff. Terrorist attacks, cyber warfare, a nuclear bomb or global warming, or a financial meltdown. And we could add to that list, couldn't we? Lots of things that cause us to fear. And lots of things that we fear fearful of. Well, if so, you're not on your own because in our passage, Jacob was in a scary situation. Take a look with me at verse 31 of chapter 31. Here's what's going on in Jacob's head. Jacob answered Laban, I was afraid because I thought you would take your daughters away from me by force. Fear seems to be the issue for him. And we see it played out in chapter 32 as well. And he's got it. You understand why. He's got 11 kids. He's got responsibilities now. Not just any kids, though. The foundations of the nation. Everything has been heading to this point. But he's not in the promised land. He's not home. And he's told to return home, go there. But he's got nothing. And he's going nowhere. You see, he can't leave. If he leaves, they either starve or they get stopped. If he leaves, well, there's no provision. He's got nothing. They'll be like refugees with no food, starving out somewhere in the desert. No provision. If he leaves, well, there's no protection. Laban, he'll probably stop them. After 14 years hard labour, if Jacob says, I'm off, Laban says, I don't think so, actually. And he takes the family hostage. That's the fear. He's stuck, almost with a gun to his head. And Laban shows by what he does in the passage that Jacob's absolutely right to fear. A family mob on the chase out to get him. Fear, no protection. He's got nothing. And he's going nowhere. The nation's only just been born. It's almost as if it's not even going to get out of the nursery into adult life, and that the promises of Genesis 28 are going to get wiped out as the family, the hopes of everything, are destroyed. It's scary, all right. And it raises the question where does he go? Where does he go with his fears? Who does he trust? And for us, who do we trust? Because we all trust in something or someone. Even if you'd call yourself an atheist or an agnostic, we all trust in something or someone. Maybe you're here and you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, or you're just looking into things. Or at least you've got some questions or some doubts. But we've got our fears as well. And some of this resonates, maybe. And you look at that list we had at the beginning and you wonder, well, what is the answer then? What is the Bible's answer to this? Or maybe you're someone who's been following Jesus for years and you've got your own fears as well. Plenty of worries. We're not home yet. We're not in the new creation yet. And there's a lot of stuff that could happen between then and now. The next 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, whatever it is between now and then. Who are we going to trust? Who are we going to trust this week even? And the answer in our passage, and it's been the theme of our service, is this. God is with us. The presence of God is with us. And we've seen this all the way through, actually. Let me just read out some verses for us. His chapter 26, verse 3. Stay in this land for a while, and I will be with you, and I will bless you. For to you and your descendants I will give all these lands, and will confirm the oath I swore to your father Abraham. Chapter 26, 24. That night the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of your father Abraham, do not be afraid, for I am with you. I will bless you, I will increase your number of your descendants for the sake of my servant Abraham. Chapter 28, verse 15. I am with you and will watch over you wherever you go and I will bring you back to this land. I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Chapter 28, verse 20. Jacob vows, if God will be with me on my journey, then the Lord will be my God. And then our passage, chapter 31, verse 3. And it might be worth looking at this. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Go back to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. Verse 5, he said to them, I see that your father's attitude towards me is not what it was before, but the God of my father has been with me. Do you see it? We can't really miss it. God is with him and has been with him always, in every situation, no matter what, no matter when, no matter where, whatever happens, he has been and will be with him. And I think this plays out in two ways, provision and protection. Provision then, first of all. Now I think about this weird stuff that looks like it should be out of an episode of Clarkson's Farm and think about what it's all about with the sheep and the spotting and the stripes and all that kind of stuff. But Jacob says in verse 25 of chapter 30, send me on my way so I can go back to my own homeland. He has to be sent, you see, because he can't leave on his own, because he's effectively enslaved. Laban did very well out of him, but he's got nothing. And so he asks in verse 30, when may I do something for my own household? So they do a deal, a six-year deal. I'll work for you again, and I'll get to keep the spotted and striped ones, and you keep the plain ones. Deal, says Laban. And they kind of spit, you imagine, and shake hands and do what they do. But before the ink is dry, Laban changes the deal. He changes his wages ten times. That's just his way of operating. That's the way he plays the game. Dirty as anything. He stacks the deck against Jacob, deals himself an unbeatable hand. I'm sorry, didn't, didn't I say? Oh, I'm terribly sorry, but I'm going to have to take out all the spotted ones from the beginning. And I'm going to have to put three days distance between us, so there's going to be no, no way in his head that it's ever going to work out well for Jacob. And he's thinking, what a loser. He fell for this one, probably feeling quite chuffed about it all. Jacob, he's going to get nothing at the end of all of this. But Jacob is shrewd. Verse 37 of 30. He uses the tree sticks. And the stronger sheep and goats, when they're on heat, as it were, he pulls out these sticks and maybe it's aphrodisiac, I'm not quite sure, but they get pregnant and that's not all. They become spotted sheep. Well, how does this work? Well, I'm not quite sure. Some suggest it could be some sort of sorcery. Others claim it was a legit method of agriculture, maybe. Or maybe we're just not supposed to think about that too much in terms of how, but we're supposed to consider that God is with him in amongst it all. He is providing for him. In every situation, against all the odds, even when Laban stacked the deck against Jacob, God holds all the aces. He is providing for him. And so, verse 34. The house of Jacob increased greatly and had large flocks. That's the punchline at the end of chapter 30. Maybe you're wondering, well, isn't this just Jacob up to his old tricks? Is he kind of fleecing Laban, if you like? Well, the dream tells us that that's not the case. The dream in chapter 31 Take a look from verse 9. God has taken away your father's livestock and has given them to me. In breeding season, I once had a dream in which I looked up and saw that the male goats mating with the flock were streaked, speckled, and spotted. The angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, I answered, Here I am. And he said, Look up and see that all the male goats mating with the flock are streaked, speckled, or spotted. For I have seen that Laban, what Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel. So God, you see, he provides. And I think this is where we get a kind of taster of what we see later on. In Exodus, where we see the same thing. Someone in slavery, a whole nation in slavery now, leaving for the promised land, And they plunder the Egyptians. Exactly the same pattern. Well, what does this strange sheep story have to say to us? Well, let me give you some wrong applications first, just so we get those out of the way. It's not, don't get mad, get even. It's nothing like that. It's not, take matters into your own hands. It's not like that either. Instead, it's the reverse of that. It is put everything into God's hands. It's a wonderful picture of his very kind providence, his provision. He is trustworthy. Now, I know as I use the word providence or God's provision, that we could misread that somehow. I think well, maybe that means that God gives me what I want or he spares me from poverty or the hard times. Well, that doesn't mean that either. And maybe some of you are right in the middle of a hard time right now. But it does mean that God provides. In particular, he provides what we need to get home. Home to heaven. Home to the new creation. He can be trusted, you see he can be trusted with our fears. So firstly, provision. But secondly, protection. The story goes on, and Jacob wins his hand, or rather God does, for him. But it's not over. He's wealthy, but in that kind of bond-type moment where in the casino he gathers all the chips together and cashes them in, and he's got this wadge of money, he collects the winnings, The others, they look on. In fact, the sons of Laban, they look on in verse 1 of chapter 31 and they're properly annoyed. They feel like they've been completely cleaned out and they have. And suddenly the danger levels increase again. It's a new threat, but it's bigger. Laban doesn't look on him with favour anymore and the clock is counting down. So this time, Jacob takes the lead. He calls a family crisis meeting. They're in a field so no one can hear them. So it's all quiet, hush, hush. But it's serious and it's dangerous. And the promise of God to Jacob from chapter 28 could be wiped out. The people are in real danger. But Jacob, he knows that God is with them and has protected them. Take a look at verse 5. I see that your father's attitude towards me is not as it was before. Big understatement. But the God of my father has been with me. He goes on to say, You know that I've worked for your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me by changing my wages ten times. However, God has not allowed him to harm me. He says that in confidence, And the wives, they line up with him and those promises. But things, they don't seem to look that good, do they? Despite all of that. And so they wait for the sheep shearing shearing season. They wait until Laban's out the way. And then they make a run for it. And they head out as fast as they can. They do a secret runner. They put three days distance between them. But Laban finds out. And suddenly the chase is on. And in my head, I kind of imagine dust going everywhere and camel hooves and all that kind of stuff. I guess camels move quite slowly, but you get the idea. A seven day chase to catch them up. He does catch them up. The tents are in the hills and it's face off time. What's going to happen? Laban speaks in verse 26. And what he comes out with is utter drivel like major gaslighting. He says, Why did you run off with my daughters? If only you'd told me. We could have had a party. We could have celebrated. I would have given you a proper send-off. We could have got some music going. It would have been fun. I could have said goodbye properly. There would have been hugs and kisses all round. That's what he's saying. But verse 29 reveals what he's actually really thinking. He says this, I have the power to harm you. That's what he was thinking. Reprisals, revenge, take it all back. Take back what is mine. And it's tense. It could all be over. It could be the end, but it isn't. Because verse 29 goes on, I have the power to harm you, but last night the God of your father said to me, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. We're told, you see, of a second dream here in the text. Be careful not to even say anything that is going to harm him. Don't even do that. He's got power, all right, but not ultimate power. Only God has that. Only God is omnipotent. And so he steps in and he protects them. And we can breathe again, safe. Or so it seems. It seems they're safe. Because you see, Rachel almost stuffs us up completely. Rachel steals the household gods. She literally godnaps them. Why does she do that? Well, maybe it was an insurance policy. Maybe we can bring them out if we need them. But the insurance policy ends up being a shoot-to-kill policy. It imperils all of them. And the worst of it is that Jacob, he doesn't know. Before, he knew what the threat was. and Now he's completely in the dark. And the reader bears the full tension of this story. He's in danger. And it's worse. And it's still serious. But God is still with them, protecting them. Rachel's a quick thinker, and she says it's that time of the month she's having a period. And so she says she can't get up, and she sits on the household gods in her saddlebag, and they're safe. And Laban, he's lost. Well, I think Netflix is missing a trick here. It's all over. It's game over for him. So he asks for a peace treaty. He won't renege on it this time. And finally, there are genuine hugs and kisses at the end. They are completely safe. Well, it's an exciting story. It could be a movie, I guess. But what's the point of all of this? Well, I think it's this. I think that by the end, we see what Jacob and Laban's gods are made of. We see in the red corner is the household gods. They're stolen, sat on, and then they end up as sanitary towels. That's the shock of the passage. They're disposable instead of dangerous. They are nothing to fear. Instead, we're almost meant to laugh. But in the blue corner, that's Jacob's God. He's very different. We saw at the start the issue of fear. But see how God is now described in verse 42. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been with me, you would surely have sent me away empty handed. But God has seen my hardship and the toil of my hands. And last night he rebuked you. In verse 53, we see it again. So God Jacob swore by the fear of his father Isaac. Do you see the contrast? One set of gods that are not fearful at all when it comes down to it, but one God who is awesome and marvellous. Now let's think about that for a moment. What is God like? In your head, in your heart, what is God like? What is he usually like? I ask myself the same question. Well, he's the God who is with us. The God who provides and protects. He's not a small God. He's not a household God. He's not a family God. He's not a mobile or a portable God. And he's not a God that you can slip into your saddlebag. He's not bag-sized. He's not disposable. He's not a God you can hide away. He's not limited by space or by time or by circumstances. He's the omni-God. He's omnipotent. He's the one who orchestrates history. He's the one who wonderfully provides and protects. Protects his people, gives them safety, brings them safely to the promised land, to heaven. To the new creation. And therefore he is a God that we can trust with all our fears. Heaven. The new creation. A small God can't make you feel safe. A small God is no good in a crisis. A small God is no good when life is scary. Genuinely scary. But as I say that. I guess in our heads, there's a catch. What about the horrific things that happen on a weekly basis that appear in our newsfeeds? What about Barnaby Webber, Ian Coates, and Grace O'Malley Kumar? Where is God in Nottingham when three people are senselessly killed? Wasn't he protecting them? Why not? Well, I'm not sure I've got a simple or easy answer for us. But we do want to mourn, don't we, with those who mourn and grieve. But God has purposes, even in tough times. And Jacob is evidence of that. 20 years, 20 years hard labour. But in all of that, he clung to the promises of God. That he'd bring them all home that he'd make them a people. And ultimately, that is the promise that we cling to as his church, that God would bring us safely home, ultimately, to heaven, to the new creation. But as we come to a close, here are a couple of implications for us to chew over. First of all, trust and fear God. It's easy to forget, isn't it, that God is with us, that his presence goes with us every day if we've trusted him. Because we don't seem to see it, do we? God has been and will be with us always, in every situation, no matter what, no matter where. That's why we need this passage, because we may not always feel like that. Well, why not ponder this passage tomorrow morning and take it in and pray that this will be something that you cling on to? We know this because Jesus promises his disciples this in Matthew 28. Behold, I am with you to the very end of the age. To the very end of the age, that includes you and me. So first of all, trust and fear God. But secondly, don't hedge your bets. Don't hedge your bets. You see at the end, Laban, I think, is still hedging his bets. He's been doing that all the way through with divination and household gods. But now look at verse 53 and see what he does there. See who he swears by. The God of Abraham and the God of Nahor. You see that? Two gods. I wonder if we do that ever, hedge our bets, trust God and my job, God and my status and my achievements, God and my ministry even, God and my relationships, God and my family, God and I'll leave you to fill in the blanks. Because you see, only one of those is with us. Only one of those is trustworthy. Only one of those makes and keeps promises. Only one of those will take you home in the end. Let's pray. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed but God has seen your abuse and my hard work and rendered his verdict. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for this picture of who you are and what you're like. That you are a God who is with us, whose presence goes before us, who is trustworthy to protect and provide, who is kind, who is gracious, and yet who is awesome. Please help us to trust you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen.